Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the PA Path Podcast. Before we get started, we would like to extend a special thank you to our episode sponsor, Sentinel U. Today, we have the special privilege of speaking with Dr. Don Peterson, who is one of the pillars of our profession. Dr. Peterson and his wife, Kathy, have been strong supporters of the profession from their leadership to their philanthropy. They have led in so many efforts to make the profession and the world a better place. Don became a PA through the University of Utah's PA program and went on to become their leader for decades. He also completed his PhD from the university in health education and occupational medicine. Don and Kathy have spent their lives serving others. They have a long-standing history of service in the Salt Lake City area with the Hope Free Clinic, as well as providing healthcare in Papua New Guinea, Thailand, and Nepal. Don ascended to the Mount Everest Base Camp in 2016 with his son, Nick, to place a plaque for a PA who perished in the 2015 Nepal earthquake. He and his wife have established an endowed international humanitarian outreach grant program with the PA Foundation that awards grants to PAs, PA programs, and PA students doing projects internationally. He has been the president of the Association of PA Programs, which is now known as PAEA, and the PA Foundation, and he was awarded emeritus trustee status with the foundation. He was also the chair of the Utah State Physician Assistant Licensing Board, and he was on the inaugural board of directors for the NCCPA Health Foundation. He was recognized with the PA Education Association's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016, and the University of Utah recognized his contributions with their Distinguished Service Award in 2018. In 2021, an endowed chair was established in his name at his alma mater. The full list of his accomplishments is quite large and may be found on our website at papathpodcast.com. Don, thank you so much for joining us today. It's uh, just a delight to hear your stories. Let's start with your path to becoming a PA. How did you end up down this path to this profession? Great. Well, Kevin, thanks for having me. It's a, a real treat to be on on your podcast. I was working in Southeast Idaho, living in Pocatello, Idaho, for a program. It was like a Area Health Education Center or AHEC. And we were providing continuing medical education programs for doctors and nurses and other health professionals throughout Southeastern Idaho. And I was approached by one of the hospitals that wanted to do a physical diagnosis class for nurses, you know, auscultation skills and using the instruments and eye exams and so on and so forth. I was talking with somebody and they said, hey, you ought to get these two PAs to teach that class. They're very good. So they were working in Pocatello and I approached them and I, I really wasn't aware of PAs that much. I had heard of the medics program up at the University of Washington and, and so on, but I wasn't quite sure. This was in 1974-75 time frame. And so I did hire them, and this was a six-week course. I think it was a day or two a week for six weeks. And I sat in on it, uh, the classes uh, in Pocatello for a group of nurses, and they blew me away. I mean, they just blew me away. They yeah, they were talking about uh, egophony and bronchophony and whispered pectoriloquy. And, you know, I showed them how to use all the instruments and auscultation skills and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I found out more and more about the PA concept. And lo and behold, there was a program at the University of Utah in the School of Medicine that started in 1970. 
So I went down and interviewed our activities, even stretched down to Salt Lake, and we would do some courses down there and so forth. So uh, I was able to visit with the folks at the PA program and applied and, and eventually got in. And it was a marvelous uh, experience for me. I made the commute from Pocatello down to Salt Lake City every week, lived in my van, had a meal ticket at the dorm and a shower at the gym, and slept in my van on campus in various locations for the didactic year. And I would go home on Friday after class and then do the trek again down. And uh, it was just perfect for me because I could study, you know, in the library, Eccles Library till 10 or whenever it closed and then uh, roll out and, you know, camp out essentially. So it was quite, quite wonderful. And we were a medics program, medics modeled. So it had a element of apprenticeship. And so they placed us with very busy rural, mostly family practice physicians that were, I guess what I'd call full service, where we did OB, we covered the ER for our patients, we uh, covered them in the hospital, we had a nursing home that we covered, we had kids, uh, you know, to cradle the grave, basically. And I was so fortunate to have Bud Miller as my precepting physician, and he just, you know, brought me in, treated me like family. His wife was the office nurse, Minnie, and I, I just became part of that. And so I did the year there for my clinicals and then hired on for a year at $16,000 a year. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> so I was excited when the PA program, the Utah program, asked me to come and join the faculty. So I, I think I got a $2,000 raise. So. <laughs> so those were the old days. But it, it was a real draw, and I, uh, I don't regret it one bit. I had the opportunity to teach, to be an administrator, and to do clinical medicine throughout my whole career. So when you first started at the University of Utah as a faculty member, um, what were kind of the roles you took on initially before they asked you to become the director? Oh, sure. Yeah, I was hired on as the academic director or academic coordinator, if you will. So I was in charge of the didactic phase. And that really suited me and my background very well. I was fortunate to have a good friend in uh, my class, a colleague and classmate, who had tons of clinical skills as an EMT and ER tech and experiences that I didn't have. I had more of the academic background, whereas the majority of our students at that time in 77, 78 were returning corpsmen from Vietnam and, and so on. And so... So Doug Barker took me under his wing, and we would go down to the hospital where he had worked before, and we'd have suturing skills for me and casting and lab tests and so on and so forth. So he brought me up to speed in that regard. But I was the academic coordinator for about 10 years and then became director of the program. And we were a certificate program at that time. And for me, the thing I'm most proud of is kind of our journey from a certificate-only PA program, and we were termed the Utah MedEx Demonstration Project. To me, that didn't provide much sustainability or stature or what have you. And so sure. it was a quest to bring legitimacy to our fledgling program. And I'm pleased it, it did take quite a while, but we became a, a master's degree granting program in 2000. 
that was quite a quite an accomplishment, I think. And what was rewarding was we ha had no negative comment through all of the meetings, all of the boards, all of the trustees, but up to the border regents in the state. And only very nice thing to say about our training program. For many years, the University of Utah was the only PA program in the state of Utah. So I would imagine that legitimacy that you talk about and, and the incredible uh, the Practice Act kind of evolution that you saw was largely in part to you and your team's leadership uh, and, and your predecessor, I'd imagine, as well. Yeah. Very fortunate to have really good people on our faculty. You know, I worked under Dr. Hillman Castle, who uh, was one of the first presidents of APAP over the years, and, and Bill Wilson, who was the first program director. Hillman was the chair of the Department of Family and Community Medicine at that time now family and preventive medicine. But yeah, we, we surrounded ourselves with good folks and who had an idea of building relationships. And so we were co-sponsored by the Utah State Medical Society. And I mean, that was unheard of in the day. And it proved out to be very beneficial with regard to legislative activities and you know, being kept abreast of what was on, on the scene because they had lobbyists and, you know, they, they really helped us out. So that we've been under their wing for a lot of years. It's, it's benefited us greatly. That's great. And you also served as the chair of the licensing board for quite a while. So, Oh, yeah, I think for a decade. So at, at the very first, before we got some comprehensive legislation and practice act of our own in 19... 90, we were a subcommittee of the Utah Medical Association. We were a subcommittee of the Physician Licensing Board. I think it was called the Physician Extender Committee. And so we, we operated under that. But when we got our legislation in 90, then we became our own licensing board. And uh, so I was fortunate to be on that for about a decade and was chair for a number of years as well. And we worked with our physicians, our practice partners, and it was quite a symbiotic, you know, relationship as we still have today, despite what's moving forward on the PA practice front, we still see it as a team effort and we don't want to lose that. Yeah. And I would imagine early on in those days were the majority of the people that you were overseeing for licensure, the grads from your program. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Probably yeah. The, predominantly, they were our graduates. Yeah. Don, you've just been such a tremendous leader in our profession. And one of the areas where you have contributed so much is in the area of the Education Association, which was once APAP, the Association of PA Programs, which is now PAEA. Could you talk to us a little bit about your involvement starting back in the days of APAP and how that evolved through to what PAEA has become today? In the early 80s, you know, I got involved with the APAP and was on the membership committee and had the good fortune to meet Mike Huckabee and Cheryl Boosbaum and, and so on and so forth. So, so I was the new guy on the membership committee. And so what fell to me was publication of the association's newsletter. <laughs> which Mike had started and Cheryl had started and did a couple issues. But I took that on and I, I stayed with that for about eight years. And so we had a we had a newsletter. We tried to get it out monthly, but it's an all-volunteer organization, as you know. And, you know, that was difficult. But things uh, really started to progress and become sophisticated. And I started getting more and more articles from people, uh, from faculty, 
So I did get involved in leadership. I ran for president and was successful. You know, be careful what you wish for. But anyway, it was tradition at APAP for the president-elect to come up with some signature program or some key accomplishment that they wanted to pursue during their presidential year. And so I read through the bylaws and so on and said, oh, we're here to foster and promote research. And uh, to my knowledge at the time, APAP itself was not doing a whole lot other than Denny Oliver, Denny Oliver from Iowa. He started the annual survey. And so we started collecting good information and being able to publish that and so on and so forth. But other than that, I mean, there were some researchers, you know, in our ranks that were publishing, but they were publishing elsewhere because we had no vehicle for them to publish through APAP. It was an easy call for me. And I said, we really need to start a, a research effort. So I started with the help of the board, Dennis Blessing, Terry Stolberg, uh, Lisa Alexander and a few others, names you'll, you'll recall. So I said, let's start a research institute. And so what were the elements of that? Okay, I said, well, we need to turn the Perspectives on PA Education newsletter into a, an official peer-reviewed journal. And so we, through the Institute and then an editorial board, we started the Association's Journal first called Perspectives on PA Education, as the newsletter was called. But also, I thought we really needed to have some support for faculty to do research, to be scholarly, to publish, and so on. And so we were able, Kathy and I, to help with starting a research grants program that would provide funding for APAP faculty to pursue their research interests and then have the journal available for them to publish those results. And then the third leg of that stool was also some recognition. And that came in the form of a, a research service award that continues to be given out through PAEA. So I'm really pleased about that. And, you know, we have a quarterly journal and I'm so pleased with, you know, what has transpired moving into an electronic version so we can have more articles published in a timely fashion. So Trent Honda now currently, but at the University of Utah, I, I convinced my administrators to put some financial backing into this journal. And so we edited it, published it. I schlepped the boxes of, of journals down to the mailroom and we mailed them out at least every quarter for eight, almost eight years. Uh, we had a kind of a, a ramp up the year of, in 97, and then we published the first issue of the official journal in 1998. So Perspectives on PA Education represented eight years of a newsletter that was more or less monthly, but then moving on into a quarterly journal. And I was so pleased. It, it just got better and better, the quality faculty stepped up reviewers, you know, the peer review process. We, we, we coordinated all of that at the University of Utah. And Geraldine Nunu was a staff person that helped me out uh, immensely. And then when Stephen Lane came on board with PAE or APAP at the time, we, we started getting more and more help and guidance. 
And then I said, we, we really, this is not sustainable for us at the university. We have to turn it over to the association. And so that's when the search started. And Eugene Jones from UT Southwestern stepped up as the second editor-in-chief. And then uh, Dave Asbury, after a number of years, I think about six or seven years of Gene's tenure, Dave Asbury stepped up and did a marvelous job. And, and things kept moving forward. We got you know referenced in PubMed and uh, other places and, and so on. So it became, I think, a, a really outstanding piece of work, all due to the efforts of the APAP PAE faculty and the staff at PAEA now. And now Trent Honda's taken over as the fourth editor-in-chief, and it's still going strong, and it's even getting better, I think. And to have the electronic version to accommodate faculty researchers to get their information out there in a timely fashion. So that was great. And the, the presidential year for me was just marvelous. It was, it was just fun. Accomplished a whole lot. We started the first discussions about the central application service. I remember Wayne Bottom from Gainesville from Florida got on the board specifically to push this through, to have a central application service. Walter Stein was on my board at the time as well, and everybody was stepping up and, and, and doing some great work. Yeah, when we talk about standing on the shoulders of giants, I think you and many of the colleagues that you just mentioned are certainly the giants whose, standard, whose shoulders we stand upon. Let's take a quick minute for a word from our episode sponsor, Sentinel U. Sentinel U is a leading provider of healthcare simulations and learning innovations. Their portfolio of virtual simulations and clinical experiences are the best practice for learners to gain clinical judgment and critical thinking skills. Designed for PA students, their advanced practice series exposes learners to patient encounters in 11 areas, from typical adult and pediatric to cardiology and oncology, all mapped to competencies for the PA profession. Check out the Global Business 2022 EdTech Company of the Year at sentinelu.com. So, Don, you yourself have published over 85 articles, books, and book chapters in your professional history. How much of that occurred before that time with APAP and, and how much of it after? Oh, I think there, I had a cadre of folks there at the program when I joined that had an interest in scholarly activities. And that was really helpful. Rick Murdoch was an administrator. George White was a clinical coordinator. And, and we said, we've got, we've got to you know, publish our information that we've been collecting on students. And Bill Wilson, of course, and Hillman Castle as well were good writers, good thinkers. And we, we were able to publish quite a few things. But they, like I said, they weren't in an association-related journal. A lot of them were clinical articles. So there were some clinical PA journals around at the time. And some of those publications were published in those journals. But it was after APAP really stepped up with the research effort with the journal and research grants and uh, recognitions and so forth that I started to get more and more involved. In fact, sure. I remember writing one of the lead article, the lead article for the first issue. And it had all to do about clinical experiences of students and why program should not have to pay preceptors to precept <laughs> because we could demonstrate clearly with our apprenticeship model where you stayed with one preceptor pretty much your whole clinical year 
that over time you become very productive as a student and you add to the financial health of that organization. In fact, we had an HMO at the time that was really after me to pay them to have our students there where we could use what we call patient logs. And so it, it says what the problem was, what level of inter involvement that the physician had with that patient. Uh, a one would be you're kind of coattailing the doctor and four is start to finish. You've seen this patient and they're gone. And so we were clearly able to tell that over time, you know, you had to have two to three months of experience, but over time, it was a win for the practice. Yeah. And so then you also transitioned to the PA Foundation and became very involved in right. the Academy's foundation efforts, uh, their nonprofit arm focused on uh, philanthropy. So can you talk a little bit about that evolution and all the great work that you've done there? Well, I don't quite remember exactly how I got involved with the foundation, but I like what, what they were trying to accomplish. You know, they were trying to uh, support PAs, do good work in the world. And uh, I said, yeah, I, I'd like to get involved in that. And so after my stint with APAP, I moved on to the PA Foundation board. And I remember moving up and then becoming president. And when, when that happened, it was right around the time of Katrina, Hurricane Katrina. And I had some contacts with a multinational corporation that I knew had a track record of doing good work, doing uh, socially responsible philanthropic work. And so I approached them for a $10,000 challenge grant. And we got that out on the waves with the constituency. And I couldn't believe it. The PAs stepped up. University, we raised $80,000 for Hurricane Katrina relief. And I remember going down to Long Beach, Mississippi, and we helped rebuild a community health center with some of that money. And then we did another project in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. Yeah, Paul Robinson came down when he was uh, he was president, I think, of the academy at the time. And we, we had a nice ceremony, and, and that really got me. I mean, that really got me, that the power, that our collective power that we have as an organization and as a, as a caring profession. And so we're able, Kathy and I, to... Um, start an endowed program for my father who had passed away in 2005. And this was our idea of a global, global health grants, outreach grants. That has been so rewarding to have that all of these years. I think the last count was about 50 projects in almost the same amount of countries on five continents. And this is all PAs, PA students, PA graduates, PA programs. And my, my dad would be so proud, and I know he is. Is that your dad's legacy in your, from your perspective in terms of his, uh, did he raise you in that kind of service-oriented philosophy? Yeah, I think so. He worked for Starkist Foods, and uh, he was in the lab but moved up into leadership and became a vice president of Starkist. And he, would, he was operations guy, and so he would go to various countries. He would go to American Samoa a lot, to Puerto Rico, to, to Ghana, you know, where they had tuna canneries and, and so on and so forth. And then consequently, he would bring a lot of delegations from those countries to the U.S. And so, you know, that kind of put a uh, spark there, I think, in that regard. He was always so generous and, and so competent. I mean, he just, he was an amazing gentleman. 
Uh, I miss him dearly, and but his his legacy goes on through the association uh, with this endowed program that continues to serve globally. That has to be such a pride point for you in terms of your ability to kind of take that piece of your past and then take it and mirror it with your professional journey and then impact so many people globally at the same time. So, And you've also done global international outreach yourself uh, quite a bit. So maybe can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think you've worked, done some work in Thailand. You've done some work in Papua New Guinea, Nepal. Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's one of the great loves of, of mine and uh, uh, a legacy in our own program. In the late 90s, I took my first trip to Papua New Guinea. And it was due to the fact that I had a classmate at the time, Doug Barker, who went on to the Peace Corps after graduation. And then he went on to refugee camps on the Thai-Cambodia border, the Afghan-Pakistan border. I mean, in charge of healthcare and safety for you know upwards of 50,000 people in these different camps. And uh, I put, put him in for the International Humanitarian PA of the Year in 1995. And I remember at the uh, conference, it was in New York, where Doug had to give a speech. And uh, we chatted about that, certainly. And he actually tore up his speech and just spoke from his heart. And it just touched me as well. And so we, we got together talking about how do you get students geared up and fired up about doing some international work, doing some good humanitarian international work. So we started then after my visit to Papua New Guinea in about 97, I think it was, a convincing at that time a multinational corporation to underwrite the travel and room and board for PA students to go to these countries because while they're there, they can teach, they can train because they've been nurses, paramedics, respiratory therapists, you know, psychologists, uh, you name it. And so they could teach while they're there, the employees working in the health sector, but also the government workers. And so we would be out in very remote areas where you'd have to helicopter places and so on. And just think about it. it it's a life-changing experience for these young PA students who get to contribute, but then also get to learn with the PAs and docs, you know, that are in the project area. So, so that was our first foray. And we had that for about six, seven years. And then we lost funding. Oh, the other thing that was really interesting is Papua New Guinea has a healthcare worker called the health extension officer. And they are PAs. They're PA analogs. I call them rainforest PAs because that's where they work. That's where they work. The docs don't go to the, the rural areas, you know, familiar story, of course. And so we, we had people in rainforests and, you know, in primitive conditions and uh, doing, doing some, some really amazing work. But we lost that funding stream because you, you just can't do it otherwise. You can't, you can't do these sorts of things on bake sales and so on, which all of us have tried forever. So in any event, we um, uh, moved the operation to Thailand because Doug, my friend, uh, married a Thai woman who he met at, in the refugee camp on the Thai-Cambodia border, Noi. And so Noi then helped us coordinate uh, a month-long international rotation for PA students, which really provided a solid curriculum, not just to go out there and experience whatever you can experience. It was a curriculum where they heard from the experts in the field 
on SARS, on uh, leprosy, on AIDS, trips to the AIDS hospice, and and experienced so much again in, in life-changing activities. So we did that. Then we had Ghana came on board for a while, but then we had a group of students that were raising money. They wanted to go internationally and so on and so forth, and they did that. But then Ebola hit West Africa. And so the university put a stop to us going there. But Kathy and I had been doing some workforce research in Nepal and been over there four or five times working with people, learning about their PA analog called a health assistant. And again, only out in the rural areas doing PA-like work, if you will. And so I said, I think we can cobble together a real credible rotation in Nepal. And we did. Uh, we met up with uh, Dr. Ram Shrestha, who uh, was a surgeon and head of the hospital, Montmohan Memorial Teaching Hospital in Kathmandu. And so we'd spend two weeks in Kathmandu at the teaching hospital where they'd go on rotations with experts and so on. And then we would go up to rural villages in the Annapurna region and trek, trek up to rural villages, have a base, go out to other villages or have health camps that were set up by the health assistants that man a health post in Gandrug, where we were. And so, you know, we developed a, a very sustainable, uh, lasting situation that's it's ongoing today. Certainly COVID got in the way for a couple of years of the, these activities, but they're back on board now. And I, I think doing some great, great work for people that are, are incredibly vulnerable and and uh, impoverished. Yeah, so we've, we've developed quite a relationship there. And, and that, that led to a lot of scholarship as well, a lot of uh, publishing with regards to these activities over time. And then we have another rotation in Guatemala as well that Jenny Coom, Jennifer Coombs coordinates. We haven't been there, but we'd love to go. What a tremendous opportunity for you know for for both you and for students to yeah. expand their horizons and really meet the needs of vulnerable populations around. The world. Well, it's really great to establish these relationships because when disaster strikes, then you know you have affiliation agreements in place, you have memorandums of understanding that allows you to go in and do some credible needed work, and that happened after the earthquake in uh, Nepal in 2015. We had our students, they were at the airport when it hit. Kathy and I had left the day before, the night before we left. Our one faculty, Scott Brown, who really is the brains behind the rural portion of the Nepal elective, which is just magical. He's had many trips there with an activity that he was involved in before he became a PA student. But he wanted to come back and really help out, particularly this village of Gandruk and uh, area in the, in the Annapurna region. And the same thing happened after the 2004 tsunami, you know, the Bandachi earthquake and, you know, 250,000 people killed and we had 10,000 fatalities in Thailand. But since we had this relationship, we were able to make a difference, go and, and do something that needed to be done. And unfortunately, in, in uh, Thailand, it was working with the Bandachi. Devastating event. Yeah, but Absolutely. Is tragic and impactful. So, Don, one thing that many people know about you, but some might not know, is that you're you are a tremendous artist. And uh, one of the things I think my observations, when I've been lucky enough to observe your art, is that 
you have a unique ability to really pull together your love for travel and the global experiences that you've had and I think the cultures that you've been exposed to and medicine and kind of pull those things together in your art. So I was wondering if you could just reflect a little bit on your art and how how some of your experiences have influenced your art. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how accomplished, but I am persistent. And I think that's what it takes. And particularly in oils, you know, if it's not coming out well, you just keep painting over it and over it and over it until it gets right or feels good to you. So yeah, I've used a lot of our travels and people particularly, because I do enjoy portrait painting of people that I've encountered and and that sort of thing. And the most recent painting I just completed was a request from our medical director, Richard Backman, who is involved with our students on the Ute Reservation. Uh, and, you know, our students do a lot of, you know, Head Start physicals and, you know, reach outreach and, and so forth and screenings and such. And so I said, Don, will you paint a painting? You know, we want to give it to the Ute tribe. And so uh, I said, sure, sure. So I came across a, an old black and white photograph of uh, Chief White Crow, circa 1900. And he's just this majestic individual. Uh, it was just this, you know, bold, charismatic uh, look. And so I painted that and I, I thought it came out great. <laughs> so it was uh, two feet by three feet. And I had a friend of mine put a barnwood frame around it and, uh, you know, old rustic looking thing, and then put a plaque on it. And it said, you know, Chief White Crow, circa 1900, presented to the Ute tribe by the U University of Utah Physician Assistant Program students. And so it was a gift from the students to the Ute tribe. And I'm just so happy about that, so pleased about that. That's great. That's amazing, Don. I, I've always enjoyed your art as well. I had a one of your original paintings at USC that had, I'm sure had been purchased or gifted to them. And certainly the statue of the military corpsman that is outside of the University of Utah PA program that many of us have the replica of. Yeah. Uh, there's just such a legacy of art. And, and I think it's an important aspect of being a good clinician is to be able to tap into that that artistic side of your brain and, and express it in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that combat medic sculpture was a very important project for me. I started ruminating on this as I came to realize incoming PA students did not know the history, did not know where the original substrate for PA training came from. Mm -hmm. And so on, as I told Kathy, hey, we, we got to do a sculpture and put it right in front of the entryway so they see it every day. And so she found John Prazen. This is a fabulous story. So Prazen was a Korean War era veteran who was a corpsman, a Navy corpsman, served on the USS Ferry. And so she found him through a newspaper article about his work. His work was beautiful, Native American, mostly sculptures in bronze and so on and so forth. So I called him up and we went down to Mesquite, Nevada, where he lived with his wife. And we met them for dinner at a casino. And he was so taken with it because he was thinking he would become a PA, having been a corpsman. And, and the original four corpsmen were out of the Korean War era that uh, Dr. Stead took into Duke in 65. You know, so there was that history, but he had it sculpted in clay before 
I even started to raise any money for it. I mean, he was so committed to it. So a lot of people got on board as a planning committee and so on. We raised the money and so forth. But then we, we put one at the Stead Center, a life-size one, a North Carolina Academy of PAs, and then one at Lock Haven in Pennsylvania. And so there are three life-size There's three life-size ones and I don't know, maybe 300 or so smaller ones and and then some entry level, entry sized ones, you know, a little larger. And so that was a great project. I, I just love that project. And now awesome. we're changing, we're changing buildings in the future and within the next year, I got to figure out what to do with the big life size sculpture. <laughs> yeah. But they, uh, the university wants it and they want to find a nice place for it. So I'm happy about that. So it's not going to be my backyard. <laughs> not great. Well, Don, I, I mean, we just don't have enough time to talk through everything. You, your legacy is really incredible. And yeah, and also just kudos to you for your legacy of leadership, because when we spoke to Jared uh, Spackman back in the spring about the University of Utah, you know, we kind of reminisced about all the great leaders that have come from your institution. And I know that, you know, somebody modeled that for you, but then you continue to model that to your team. And that's why it's been such a successful place. So we just want to, Steph and I, I know I speak on her behalf when we say we want to thank you for your incredible leadership for our profession and for humanity. And we look forward to seeing some of the great things that come out of your legacy down the road too. Thank you very much. It's just been a delight to see you guys. And I'm sorry you can't see me, but I look the same, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's because you, that's cause you hike all over the world. <laughs> you stay in good shape. Still vertical, so keep pushing. Well, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Don Peterson, for his time and incredible service to the profession. His path has touched the lives of so many PAs, and his contributions internationally have left a strong example for all of us to follow and admire. We would like to extend a special thanks to our episode sponsor, Sentinel U. For more information, visit them online at sentinelu.com. Tune in next time as we continue the conversations with our PA colleagues and leaders around the world.